Humanity has a mixed relationship with the Bible, to say the least. Some absolutely love it, some can't stand it, and you've probably got a pretty big spectrum in the people that you know, and maybe even within your own experiences of the text. And the text seems to have this totally split personality. Jesus says, love your enemies. But Joshua says, pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear, don't let them reach their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. It's a hard thing to love. The only way to resolve the tension is through understanding the language of divine allegory or parable that the Bible is actually written in called correspondences. Once we look through that lens, we can see that the Bible is a document about spiritual life, not physical life. Taking the Bible literally actually breaks and fractures the true message. But if you understand the Bible through correspondences, then the different passages are part of a unified whole. There are three kinds of damaging quandaries that come from taking the Bible literally. First, how can we follow the commandment to love God when God sometimes seems so frightening and at times immoral in the Bible? Taking the Bible literally leads to fear of or anger toward God rather than connection with God. But understanding the Bible as sacred allegory teaches us about how our own view of God fluctuates depending on our state of mind. It's a symbolic story about our personal spiritual journey with all its ups and downs. Second, what are we supposed to do with Jesus' teachings about loving our neighbor, including our enemies, when the Bible seems to condone war, slavery, vengeance, and judgment? Taking the Bible literally has been used to justify all sorts of terrible attitudes and actions, but understanding the Bible as a correspondential allegory about our inner spiritual journey paints a whole different picture. People, locations, and events in the Bible all represent qualities and processes within our own hearts and minds. Enemies represent harmful thoughts and feelings, while chosen people represent the parts in us that God can speak to and lead. Third, do we have to ignore scientific research and people's personal spiritual experiences if they seem to conflict with the Bible's text? Taking the Bible literally leads to a war between science and religion and a rejection of personal experiences. But understanding the Bible as a sacred allegory unites God's word with God's physical creation and unites God's written message with the deep personal messages from God that come to people during visions and near-death experiences. The Bible even acknowledges this use of symbolism. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. Correspondences are the key to understanding that figurative language so that it becomes direct and helpful. We've got a whole suite of resources on the concept of correspondences, so if you want more background, just hit pause and go watch those episodes. But now let's see how we can use the key of correspondences to avoid the literalist pitfalls and get the true message in the Bible that is trying to reach out to us. Literalism separates us from God's love. Have you hung out with the Bible? Have you spent time? I have. And it, it often has this really good feel to it. Like I can find myself feeling this connection with the book when I'm with it. But sometimes you're looking at the words on the page and despite that feeling, you're just, what, what is this? What is going on here? There is a problem reading the Bible literally. Let me give you an example. You know that it's good 
you got a sense that it's something noble and true to love God. And we're asked to love God in both Testaments. This is Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's Jesus. And he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 there. So God is asking us to love God in both Testaments. But if you're reading the Bible literally, if you're going back into the Old Testament and hearing the stories about God, this is a God who gets really angry if you don't do what he asks. Okay, some people might say God can get angry if God wants. God is God. But how are you going to love somebody who says, love me or else? That's not how love works. You, you may obey them, but you, are you ever going to really know that you love them if <laughs> there's a massive threat hanging over your head? And you can't, it's hard to tell other people to love that. Like, come on, guys. No, no, no. Give the, give the Bible a chance. It's really great. Yeah, there's this totally dictatorial, strong-arming God forcing you to love. People don't gravitate towards forced love. I mean, you can fear somebody, but can you love them? if there's a threat on the other end. So already, we've got a literal reading, putting this division between us and doing what God asks and what God is. Because you know that that, that good feeling you can get with the text, it's gotta be the real essence, but there's just this, this something about the way it's written, all kinds of things about the way it's written, get in the way. There's another side of the problem that emerges here uh, in Matthew, 543 to 48. You may have heard this pretty famous stuff. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus talking, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. This is pretty radical stuff. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Everybody, everybody likes people who, who think they're cool. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So some moral wisdom from Jesus Christ. The problem is, I mean, that's, I like the idea. Isn't that the kind of world we want to live in where there's compassion outside of your in-group, where people are given the benefit of the doubt, where you're even able to forgive things at times that are wrong? The problem is that that is drastically morally superior to what God does in the Old Testament. Here you have Jesus calling us to this divine love, right? That's saying the heart of it is love, love your enemies. But he's actually asking us to be better than God. Because Jesus is saying loving those who don't agree with us or don't even love us is this divine perfection from the Father, right? But if you're saying that when the Bible talks about God in the Old Testament smiting people who disobey or commanding people to kill people, that's, if you're saying that's literally God did that, then what do we have? God and Jesus didn't get the memo. The Bible is contradicting itself right away, and it's contradicting love. So right away, we've got the text. It has to be a different way to hold this material. It even seems like Jesus is holding the material differently, right? Because he knows the stories of God. He knows what God's up to. Swedenborg wrote that God's nature, his true nature, is actually directly in line with Jesus's commandments. That Jesus's commandments are, we're just trying to echo what God really is. This is from True Christianity. You can see how insane people are, no offense, 
who think that God can condemn anyone, curse anyone, throw anyone into hell, predestine anyone's soul to eternal death, avenge wrongs, or rage against or punish anyone. People are even more insane if they actually believe this, let alone teach it. In reality, God cannot turn away from us or even look at us with a frown. To do any such thing would be against his essence. And what is against his essence is against himself. Because God is, the, God is divine love. God is the morality, moral center of everything that we are striving towards. The more you know, the more people approach that, the more we see them as wise and loving. Of course, God would be in that direction. And that's the God we all want to love. This God who, who is willing to, isn't that the story of Jesus, that he had all this horrible stuff happen to him, but still was saying, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Isn't that what's, what's exciting about this idea of God? In the first place, what do we, do? we want to get there, but we can't because of the literal text. Well, what do we do about this? I would assert that Jesus himself left us some pretty significant breadcrumbs. We're going to take a look here at the biblical story of the road to Emmaus. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? So right there, Jesus is telling us that in all the scriptures, there's stuff concerning him. But there's, you go back, there's not stuff about Jesus there, is there? It means that that, because you, you think you're just navigating, okay, the children of Israel did this, Noah did this. This means that there must be symbolism in there if Jesus is spoken of in those stories. And this is how Swedenborg starts. All of his theological works is with asserting the very same thing. This is Secrets of Heaven 1. The word in the Old Testament contains secrets of heaven. And every single aspect of it, every bit of it, every word of it, has to do with the Lord, who is what term Swedenborg uses for Jesus, his heaven, the church, faith, and all the tenets of faith. But not a single person sees this in the letter. Because it seems like it's talking about people moving from place to place. It seems like it's about plagues and all kinds of war. But it's really about what's going on inside of us. The truth is, however, that every part of the Old Testament holds an inner message. And this is the same message that Jesus is talking about while he's walking on the road to Emmaus. So how do we apply this concept, these correspondences, this inner meaning, to these conflicting pictures of God that we get? The Bible has descriptions of God that seem to conflict with each other. Let me give you two examples. In 1 Samuel 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites. Now go and attack them and utterly destroy all that they have and don't spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And then in Lamentations 3, you have sort of a mixed thing that ends on a very nice note. It says the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Well, you could fool me with some of the other passages that are going on. How do you put these things together? Well, Swedenborg's concept that the Bible is a divine 
allegory, a grand parable is so helpful. And what's going on here, Swedenborg says, is that this is really about our psychology. For one thing, when we're in an evil state or when we're doing evil, it has its own consequences built in there. But there are things that we blame God for when we're in that state. So it's written according to the appearance, how things seem to us when we're in that dark state. If you really look at the Bible carefully, you'll see that God is never harsh when people are doing the right things. It's only when people are off track, all of a sudden now God looks like a monster. So, so note that when you're reading. And if you want more, good friends, look at our episode called Why is God So Angry in the Bible? Literalism blocks love of the neighbor. Not only, as we looked in the first section, literalism blocks us from loving God, even though God is asking us to do it. We're going to see here how literalism can block loving the neighbor, loving other people as well. This, this is really getting in the way of things. Jesus said that the entire Bible hangs on two things. Maybe you've heard this before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So we were talking about this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor, not just love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Think about how much you love yourself. Love your neighbor that much. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So unless Jesus doesn't know the Bible or doesn't know what he's talking about, it's all about loving God and loving the neighbor. If there's anything propped up on the Bible, any mindset or course of action that we get that isn't about loving your neighbor as yourself, we must be reading it wrong because Jesus knew what he was talking about when he was talking about the law and the prophets. But taking the biblical narrative literally and just saying, look, God commanded this, God did that, has been used to justify slavery, violence, war, hatred, you name it. Everything that is in the worst skeletons in the closet of the human race, people have said, well, look at this part of the Bible and how that supports that. It has been used for all of this us versus them and othering people. Everything that is not loving your neighbor as yourself. So what do you do? Is that it? at the end, if we see the Bible through this lens of correspondences as divine allegory, there is a way, actually, that not only do you keep everything in the Bible, but it becomes part of this love of the neighbor. You can see, when you look at it through this lens, that the characters, the events, the locations in the Bible stories, even if some of them actually happened, it's, it's irrelevant. They all represent different qualities in our own minds and hearts and different stages of our spiritual journey. For example, in this slide, you have this story with Abram and Sarai in it, with the four kings and the five kings and Lot. What does that have to do? Is it anything other than some kind of battle and conquest? But this is actually about the love and the truth in our inner self and the protection there, and then the outer part of our own minds with the awareness of the world around us and the evil tendencies we have and how they clash with each other. That's the kind of story the Bible is telling, a story to improve each of us and have us be a better neighbor to the human race. This slide is from our show, The Psychology of Jesus. If you want to dive in there and get a bunch more in that vein, go ahead. There's a lot of specifics there, but you see the importance of understanding what it's really talking about. We have a ton of past episodes talking about biblical stories through correspondences all throughout the whole thing, or 
If you don't want to watch those, just pick up Swedenborg's entire 12-volume Secrets of Heaven, or however many volumes in whatever translation it is. This was all about bringing that inner meaning out so that we could have this love for the Lord and love for the neighbor and this divine connection through the text. The important thing is, in learning about correspondences of any story anywhere, is that when you learn it, it paints this picture in those seemingly chaotic, violent, confusing stories of love to the neighbor. And I remember having this when I was first really digging into Swedenborg's ideas of correspondences and hearing the internal sense of a story and how it's just this amazing turn. Like, oh, if this means that and this symbolizes that, what goes from being obtuse and and distasteful is suddenly beautiful. It's the coolest thing. You've got to try it for yourself. I'm telling you, as a satisfied customer, you've got to go do that. And having a focus on the two great commandments of loving God and loving the neighbor not only is good, but it's essential to us actually comprehending what the Bible or the Word is about. This is from Sacred Scripture 77. Whether or not the Word is the Word, whether or not the Word is the Word, he means the Bible by that, depends on our comprehension of it. Just because you've got the book in your hand doesn't mean you get what it's about. That is on how we understand it. If we do not understand it, we may, of course, call it the Word, but for us, it's not the Word. The Word is truth depending on how it's understood. For the Word can be non-truth. It can be distorted. You you just got to look out and see that there are totally groups that completely oppose each other, both holding the Bible in the hand. So somebody's got to be wrong. The Word is spirit and life, depending on how we understand it. For the letter is dead if it's not understood. It's not even about the, the words or the container for the spirit inside them. Since we gain truth and life depending on how we understand the Word, we also gain faith and love depending on how we understand it. Because its truth yields faith, and its life yields love. The life of the Word always yields love. That's how you know you're living by the Word. And the Word is, we're talking about the Bible, Swedenborg calls it the Word, it's super long. And there's really a lot of divergent narratives and parts, and it goes from historical to a bunch of poems to the story of Jesus in four different uh, renditions. What's it actually all about? And Swedenborg had this to say in True Christianity. All the principles to be taught and lived come down to loving God and loving our neighbor. The Ten Commandments contain all the teachings about these two kinds of love. The Ten Commandments are actually a little hologram that have all of the meaning of the word represented in them. The entire word teaches nothing else, as the Lord's words make clear. Jesus said, You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hinge on these two commandments. I thought we'd get that in there for you guys a second time, because he's saying that's what it's all about. The law and the prophets means the entire word. So this is all about love of the Lord and love of the neighbor. And if you're looking just at the literal text and and you're not paying attention to what your emotional driver is, anybody can dive in there and pick it up and find a way to justify what they want to do. But if you're coming from love of the Lord, love of the neighbor, that opens up the meaning to you. Essentially, the whole Bible is about not harming your neighbor. And Jesus even did a little correspondential unpacking himself. You know, he says, you have heard that you shouldn't kill, but I'm going to tell you, actually don't even engage in the spirit of killing that's in hatred. He, he goes through and and unpacks these correspondences a bit for us. This is not something foreign that's just coming from Swedenborg. We see Jesus living this. Jesus could see the whole deeper meaning 
because he is that love. The attitude we're meant to try to emulate coming to it, that is what Jesus is, right? And what we love shapes our comprehension. This is from True Christianity. The Word says that the Holy Spirit enlightens us and brings us to life, and even that it works inside us. This life is varied and modified, however, by the structure that is created in us, not by what we understand, but by what we love. So, go at the Bible from love, knowing that the point of the whole thing is love of God and love of the neighbor. That's the mission. It doesn't change. Ask God to help you figure out what is this, how does this part in it contribute to it. You're going to be in really good shape then. Okay, okay. I get it. Love is good. Love is good. Right, right. But what about all these biblical stories that don't seem like they really have to do with love at all? The Old Testament stories about the children of Israel conquering the land of Canaan and driving out their enemies are not stories about God condoning violence between people or preferring one group of people over another. Even though the stories are based on historical events, they were written down in such a way as to be a divine allegory about our own inner spiritual journey, which is a quest for a heavenly state of mind symbolized by the promised land. And that's a state of mind in which we're in heavenly love and heavenly truth. And so in the stories, the chosen people symbolize the parts in us that are willing to listen to God and follow God, even though we fluctuate in our ability to do so. And the enemies symbolize destructive impulses and false thinking that can get in the way and block our ability to achieve heavenly love. So whenever you read a Bible story, no matter how strange it seems in the literal sense, think about what it might be revealing about your own spiritual journey and the struggles that we go through on that journey, the things we have to overcome, the things we learn. Because if you look at it that way, these stories really bond us all to each other because we're all somewhere on this journey, on this quest for higher love and truth. Literalism separates the Bible from science and experience. We've seen the way that it can drive a wedge between us and God and love of the neighbor, but also, don't we see the literal interpretation of the Bible starting a war between people who are loyal to the Bible and what science is telling us about the universe? There is this conflict there because the Bible's got this account particularly of creation, right? But then science is really finding out this ultra compelling narrative of how things happen and able to produce technology. So what do you do? And I, probably a lot of the Bible people don't want to have to set themselves against it, but they feel trapped by the literal text. Correspondences, this inner, this inner sense of the Bible that we can look at show how actually there's not a conflict because the Bible is never talking about physical things. The Bible is talking about the Spirit. Sci and this actually gives really clear, really good lanes for both of these things because science can study the physical world and it is an awesome tool for finding out how the observable universe works. But then the Bible is focused on the Spirit, the stuff that's only observable inside each of us. And because both the physical and spiritual stuff comes from God in the same meta-system in creation, what we can learn from science about physical stuff actually can improve our understanding of the biblical, spiritual side of life. Jesus did it. Jesus is always using parables about stuff from nature 
to teach us spiritual lessons. Jesus is this Word made flesh, so He is a living correspondence in a way. So, of course, He's using things that are natural to teach us about stuff that's more ineffable. This is Secrets of Heaven 4. The Word's literal meaning alone, when it monopolizes our thinking, can never provide a view of the inner contents. Take, for example, the first chapter of Genesis. The literal meaning by itself offers no clue that it is speaking of anything but the world's creation. The Garden of Eden, paradise, and Adam, the first human ever created. Who supposes anything else? That's what, I mean, that's what it literally says. The wisdom hidden in these details and never before revealed will be clear enough from what follows. The inner sense of the first chapter of Genesis deals in general with the process that creates us anew. It's not talking about the process by which the physical globe got to be how it is. That is to say, with regeneration, because everything in the Bible is about the Spirit. So it's a recreation in us that it's concerned with. That's the lane that it's in. And in particular with the very earliest church. And it does so in such a way that even, not even the smallest syllable fails to represent, symbolize, and incorporate this meaning. Even yet, yeah, the story of creation is this symbolic story. We did all, if you don't think we have the details to back this up, we did a whole show about this called What the Seven Days of Creation Mean. This is the first thing Swedenborg tackled. And once you get in there, there is this liberation from this, you're looking over at what science is finding out, like, wait, is that conflicting with it? The Bible is talking to you about something actually even more important because it has to do with your eternal spirit and how the human race can rise above everything negative that's trying to pull it down. So that's one fissure we can heal here. But what about concepts of the afterlife, right? The, the personal experiences side of, of spirituality that the Bible sometimes seems to butt heads with. Because literally, in the Bible, there's not that much about life after death. And that can lead people to having this dogmatic rejection of people's experiences of the afterlife. If you think about near-death experiences, people who tell these stories of, look, I I went there, I met God, this is what it's like, but people are, I don't know if I see that in the Bible, because there's not that much in there. And also people who don't see much about the afterlife in the Bible think there's not a lot really going on. It's something that's boring. This is where we get the cliche about the angels uh, playing harps in the clouds where you have this life here that's so complex and so nuanced and so rich and so meaningful, but heaven, there's barely anything about it in here. So maybe it's just this static, maybe really joyful, but static experience. Again, Jesus is giving us the option to understand the Bible with correspondences in a deeper way. And this is the way that we can get around those descriptions and allow the biblical narrative to harmonize with these spiritual experiences. John 16, Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. In John 3, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There is something more going on here, and that includes the way Jesus talks about heaven. Jesus uses all kinds of correspondence when he's talking about heaven. I'll prove it to you. How does Jesus describe heaven? Well, does he say, look, there's a cloud and you're sitting there? No, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast mixed into flour. It's like treasure hidden in a field, a merchant who finds pearls, a net thrown into the sea, a wedding banquet, a landowner hiring laborers, 10 young women who went to meet the bridegroom. Those are not places you can live. Those are not places you can live. He is using 
examples from the world, a mustard seed, and you know that, that that's, a, that's a biological organism or, or the potential for one that then is going to get planted and grow into one. He's saying that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So if we understand the meaning attached to those things, he's telling us about this expansive afterlife, but those are things. We can go look at a mustard seed or, or an, uh, an analogous plant now and learn more and more about how that plant is and how it operates, and it should be. And that teaches us more and more about heaven. So in this way, really, science can go do what it's amazing at, which is figure out how observable stuff operates. And then we can have the Bible telling us how to take what we've learned there in this sort of first level of language that we learn from the physical world and apply it to what's beyond that, that the human consciousness actually resides in. And that's, and what that is uh, telling us is that heaven doesn't conflict with near-death experiences or science, that this is something that is actually enriched by both of those things. So understanding the whole Bible, that it's a parable it, like that, it diffuses all kinds of problems. The creation story is the most famous one, but there's also things like this idea that everyone's body will be reassembled on Judgment Day, but then you run into this, what if there was atoms in your body that were also in someone else's? This, all this stuff goes because that strange symbolic language, we understand it as applying to the development of our own spirit, of our psyche, of our beliefs, of our motivations, and the process of spiritual rebirth. That's what the Bible's talking about. God, if God was designing it to be a science textbook, it would have been written a lot differently. And according to Swedenborg, there's a biblical prophecy, actually, about this, about science, rationality, and spirituality all getting along in harmony. We did a a Swedenborg Minute about it called The Future of Science and Spirituality. Check that out for how there is supposed to be this day coming when this stuff is all reinforcing uh, each other. Correspondences gets us, if we look through that lens, it gets us so that physical design, human experiences, and the written word of the Bible are all working powerfully together. Here's an example of the Bible, scientific study, and spiritual reflection coming together to give me a deep sense of trust in God's love, and it's through evergreens. Just on the surface, evergreens are hopeful. They stay green throughout the year, and I can easily apply that to my inner journey. No matter how much life circumstances fluctuate, look for the evergreens. They're holding out hope and the promise of the constancy of God's love and support. There's references to evergreens in the Bible. David writes of himself in Psalm 52, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Then later, God is described as an evergreen in the prophet Hosea. It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. Your faithfulness comes from me. So the associations being made in these verses are between evergreens and trust, steadfast love, faithfulness, this sense of always being cared for. Learning about each of these evergreens from a scientific perspective only amplifies these associations, enriching my sense of this spiritual insight. Olive trees can withstand long, hot, dry summers. Part of the reason why is because their roots are long and go deep into the soil, finding the damp spaces. Oppressive heat, like an intense summer, can correspond to lower ego cravings. So a takeaway for me is that when I'm feeling overwhelmed with the heat of strong negative emotions like shame, fear, rage, it's possible to find safety deep in the earth of my spirit. I can root deep within to where cool spiritual water is and gain a heavenly perspective on whatever is arising. On the other hand, 
cypress, and other evergreens can withstand long, cold winters with freezing temperatures. They produce their own kind of antifreeze, which depresses the freezing point of water in the needles or leaves. They also produce antifreeze proteins that attach to ice crystals and force the crystal into a shape that won't hurt the cells. Harsh cold in winter can correspond to true ideas that have lost their connection to love, that have gone cold. So what I can glean from this is that God's love can function like spiritual antifreeze, protecting us inwardly from harsh negative thoughts that crystallize in our minds. The study of evergreens and how they function can refine our understanding of the spiritual message in the Bible, giving us a detailed sense of God's presence, power, and love. So bringing scripture and science together enhances our grasp of spiritual things. So today we learned that reading the Bible literally can cause all kinds of division. Right? It can divide you from the love of God. It can divide you from love of the neighbor. It can divide the Bible from science and from personal experience. But that can all be reconciled if we read the Bible with the assumption that Jesus is love for all and total wisdom. So follow me because Jesus is the Word made flesh, right? So everything in the Bible is only truly seen as it relates to the character of Jesus. This is Secrets of Heaven 2 to 3. Where, after all, does life come from if not from what is living? That is, if not from the fact that every single thing in the Word relates to the Lord, who is truly life itself. Whatever does not look to Him at some deeper level, then, is without life. In fact, if a single expression in the Word does not embody or reflect Him, reflect His character, in its own way, it's not divine. Without this interior life, the Word in its letter is dead. It resembles a human being. Again, we are looking at the world to, to learn about spiritual things. It resembles a human being in that a human has an outward self and an inward one. As the Christian world knows, the outer being separated from the inner is just a body and so is dead. But the inward being is what lives and allows the outward being to live. None of us confuse a person for just the body without the consciousness inside it. The inner being is a person's soul. In the same way, the letter of the word by itself is a body without a soul. So the text is just a body. What's the soul? That soul is loving compassion and the powerful wisdom that comes from compassion. Because that's what Jesus is. That's how Jesus lived. That's how he acted. That is what you need to bring the text to life and understand it as it really is. For some ideas on how to get in touch with a deeper meaning, see our episode, How to Write the Word on Your Heart. You got to get that thing in there, not just know it, you got to live it. So in the Bible, the literal words are the tools by which Jesus, as divine love and wisdom, is trying to reach out to us and get us to see the two great commandments. Love God, love others. So look at it through that lens, and it will be a tool that we can all use to go out and and be the kind of people that we know our higher power is pulling us toward being and to change the kind of world in the way that you can feel that love and wisdom pushing us to do. And in that way, the, the literal text of the Bible is not an impediment. It's actually a tool. It's an important foundation that helps us get there. So, Let's go do that. I mean, that is the kind of love we can all get behind. Off the Left Eye is Curtis Childs, director, producer, and host. Karen Childs, writer, community manager, and host. Chelsea Odner, writer, production manager, and host. And Jonathan Rose, host and series editor of the NCE. Shada Sullivan is the voice you love in our narrations. Stuart Farmer is our technical director. Matthew Childs, our video art director. 
Our motion designers are Meng Zhang and Jesse Johnson. Reed McArdle made our music. Devin Osblond is our production intern. Cara Dom is our Latin consultant extraordinaire, and Chris Dunn is our digital marketing magician. And you are our much-loved listener. And now you can journey with us all week. Every Monday's Swedenborgen Life episode, including this one, has a week's worth of content lined up to support you in your exploration of these life-changing ideas. All video content premieres at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Off the Left Eye YouTube, Facebook, and Simplecast channels. On Tuesdays, find us on social media or go to offtheleftye.com to get custom downloadable art paired with the week's topic to ground you through the week. On Wednesdays, join us to dig a little deeper into the week's topic with news from heaven. On Thursdays, we want to hear from you. We'll be sharing a new reflection question weekly on our community tab and social media channels. Then join us for Swedenborg Live on Fridays for our panel Q&A show. And listen every Sunday to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to always know what we're up to and what you can look forward to. If you want to help sustain Off the Left Eye's operations, consider becoming a monthly donor today. And right now, we have a matching gift challenge from a very generous donor couple where dollar for dollar up to $10,000 will be matched when you make a new or increased monthly donation. You can provide a direct gift or restrict it to our new Off the Left Eye endowment fund. Giving to the endowment fund is a great way to guarantee that your gifts live on to help Off the Left Eye forever. Go to otle.cosvox.com to become part of our essential community of donors. From all of us here at Off the Left Eye, we thank you.